0: It's so good to see everybody. I want to welcome everyone uh, online, everyone here in the Father's House. I just want to thank Nico and the worship team for an unbelievable worship time, just getting us and preparing our hearts to be in the presence of God. I want to welcome everyone back to Encounter. I'm the pastor of Encounter, the greatest place to be on a Friday night. And tonight we're going to talk about what it means to have childlike faith, not act like a child. But to have childlike faith. And so I want to welcome you back. And for the last several weeks, the last couple weeks, actually, this is the third week, we're talking about faith. It's anchor number two. And this whole concept of faith, which wraps its mind and its whole being around this second anchor that we teach around here, which is believe that God's love and power can restore hope and healing. I don't know about you, but that anchor gets me excited especially when I talk about faith. See, we call it the faith anchor because it starts with the word believe. I love that word, believe. Now, if you look at the word faith and add two other key words found in anchor two, which are hope and love, you'll find three things that will last the test of time. Anchor two could have easily been, been written this way. Believe by faith. Believe by faith that God's love and power can restore hope and healing. Living out Anchor 2 makes it possible to have a great life by letting faith, hope, and love the three things that will last the test of time be the compass that defines your heart, your motives, your legacy, and your entire life. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. This is what I'm talking about. Three things that will last forever, forever, far beyond us. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is what? Is love. So if you're going to build your life on a foundation that will last, build it on faith, hope, and love. Makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to have a successful life, you got to have faith. Faith then becomes the genesis point for the hope. That you'll always have. Faith, listen to me very carefully, faith and belief will take you places you can never get to in your own strength. Fear and unbelief will take you places you can never get out of in your own strength. You see, difficulties and tragedies will lead you down a pathway of multiple realities. Fear Makes difficulties and tragedies, impossibilities, fueled by unbelief, which leads to irrationalities, over-anxieties, insecurities, and always uncertainties. Faith makes difficulties and tragedies a hopeful pathway, always fueled by prayer, which leads to rational, peaceful, secure certainties, that life's difficulties, tragedies, and impossibilities become mentalities that are God's specialties and his responsibilities. Childlike faith, childlike faith, makes those impossibilities God opportunities and our miraculous testimonies of the will of God for us to experience a little glimpse of heaven on earth as never-ending realities of us experiencing the certainties of the promises of God. See, when your will becomes all about thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and you really mean it, that's how you get a glimpse of heaven. All of us have prayed, thy will be done, but you don't really mean it most of the time. Oh, his will be done. Thy will be done. But you don't really mean it, do you? But when you really mean it, Say, thy will be done, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what I'm thinking, no matter what I'm feeling, no matter what my circumstances are, no matter what's happening around me, thy will be done, you're going to get a glimpse of heaven. In your life, you're going to experience some of what we get to experience in heaven. Not all of it, because no one can. You live like that, you're going to be successful in everything you do, especially in your relationships. You want a successful marriage, one that will last the test of time? Then embrace something that's going to outlast the both of you. What's going to outlast the both of you? Faith, hope, and love, right? See, you need faith in each other, and you need faith in God to have a successful marriage because you're going to be tested in that faith through tough times, and that faith will help you see beyond the storms and each other's failures, which you'll both have an abundance of in a relationship. You need, hope any, you need hope in each other, and you definitely need hope in God for a better tomorrow. You need hope so you'll never lose faith in the end of the story. And without hope and without faith, so many couples lose faith in the end of the story and never experience the love that faith And hope will always lead them to. Love that you never knew. Love that you never realized you were capable of. Unless you allow faith and hope to get you down there. That that leads us to the greatest of all the three, and that's love. You're going to need love to make a marriage last. You're going to need more love than the both of you can produce to make your marriage or any relationship last. Listen to this. To love each other like Jesus loves you is not a suggestion. It's not something you open up in a cracker after you have some chow fun, okay? It's a command from Jesus, and it creates a dilemma in your life that guess what? You can't live up to. Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other the way Jesus loves you. Let me just say it this way. You don't have the ability or even the capacity to love anyone like Jesus, you can't. so why would Jesus give us such an impossible command? Why would he do that? If, if, if it's impossible to love another way, another person, especially your spouse, or someone you love, someone in your family, the way Jesus loves us, why would He, why would he give it to us as a command? Well, it's really simple, so you would love and depend on him more then you would love and depend on your spouse or anybody in your family. It's really that simple. You see, accept and give the love that Jesus has for you in your relationships. You're going to have a very satisfying and fulfilling relationship. Love your partner or spouse or anyone in your family more than you love Jesus, and you'll find yourself in a codependent cycle of idolatry, void of God's blessing, favor, even joy and grace. But build that relationship with faith, hope, and love, and you'll have a marriage and a relationship that will last the test of time. You see, the pathway to experiencing the love of God, the power of God, and everything God wants to do in your life is always fueled by faith. But not just any faith. We're talking about childlike faith tonight. I'm talking about crazy faith. So here's a question. Here's a question for you. People who are deeply in love with each other, I mean, deeply in love with each other. They do things for the other person they love because it makes them what? Anybody? Happy. There you go. Bob, tell her what she's won. Okay? Uh, It makes them happy. My wife does things for me that make me very happy. I try and do things for her that make her very happy. We're always doing things for each other That make us extremely happy. I was sitting in my chair the other night and Carolyn yelled at me from upstairs in a good way. She said, honey, why don't you walk up those stairs and just meet me in the bedroom? I thought about it for a second. I said, i tell you what, I'm not doing both. I'm just getting old. There's no way I could do both. And so two people got that, but that's okay. All right. Let's just turn it, let's just turn the tide. Listen, get your mind out of the gutter. Get your mind out of the gutter. What were some of the things that people did that made Jesus happy? What were some of the things that made Jesus smile? What were some of the things that, that just amazed Jesus? When you study scripture, it was always when people, it was never what people did or didn't do. It was always when they operated in great faith. So we're going to look at a couple stories of people operated in childlike great faith. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 5 through 10 and verse 13. And it says this, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, I love that word, Capernaum, a Roman soldier came and pleaded. Don't miss that word, pleaded. Okay, you may want to circle that in your Bible. You may want to circle that if you're keeping notes. He pleaded. This is not just a normal approach. There's a sense of urgency here. There, there's a sense of, there, there, you can tell that this word pleaded is surrounded by his audacious faith, as Mark Battison would say. He came and pleaded with him. And here's what he said. Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. That's what he said. Jesus said, and I love this, I will come and heal him. I will come and heal him. Just really simple. There's nothing flowery about it. There's no long conversation about it. It's just as direct, I will come and heal him. Okay? I wish someday that there was like an Arnold Schwarzenegger translation of just the words of Jesus. Because he's like so direct in everything. You know, he's more direct than people give him credit for. You know, it's just like, I will come and heal him. Get out, you know, when he would just like cast out demons. Or like when he died, he said, I'll be back. You know, just like stuff like that. And so I'm waiting for an Arnold Schwarzenegger translation of red-letter words of Jesus. Because he's direct. And he's direct, and that doesn't mean he's not compassionate and loving, but he's real direct. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But watch this. Something happens that's astonishing. Here's the response of the Roman officer. And here's what he said. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Don't miss that. I'm not worried to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. Wow. I know this. Let me stop there. I know this. I know this. Because It's not that I've I've experienced this, or I think this, I hope this. He says, I know this. I know this. Because I am under the authority of, Of my superior officers. And I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go and they go, or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they just do it. So here's a man who understands authority. Here's a man who understands submission to authority. And don't miss the the, the three words of faith in this story coming from this Roman soldier. I know this. I know this. This is so key. Three overlooked words in this great story. Here's what that guy, here's what the Roman soldier was saying. I know about authority. I know about submitting to authority. I know a little something about the chain of command and who's in charge at the top, Jesus. I know this about how holy you are. I know this about you. I know this about who I am and what my purpose is. And I know this about who you are and what your purpose is. And I know this, I'm going to submit to your authority. And I know this, while I have authority over my soldiers, you have authority over every single person because you are God and I am not. So here's something that you should all do. The next time you're feeling down, the next time you're feeling discouraged, the next time you got some doubts, you got some fears, you got some insecurities, that are knocking at the doorpost of your mind, you may want to write a letter to yourself, maybe even to God, prefaced by these three words, I know this. And just start writing what you know. Not what you hope, not what you sort of think, not what you're wishing, not what you're praying for, but I know this. And write that letter to God. It will encourage you And you never know how it will move the hand of God in your life. Look how Jesus responds to this man. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel. I haven't seen someone operate like that anywhere that I've been. And then Jesus said to the Roman soldier, go back home. Because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed at that same hour. At that hour. No prayer was prayed. No long walk together on the Jordan River. Let's talk about it. Just childlike faith of believing, submitting, and receiving the miraculous power and hand of God. So here's another question for you. Serious question. Did you ever believe something so strongly, so strongly that it just came to pass in your life? You believe something so powerfully that it just came to pass in your life? You know, I never wanted to be a pastor. Never did. Told God, don't like the church, don't like being pastors, don't like pastors, don't let me be a pastor, don't let me work in the church. Well, God made me a pastor, let me work in the church. For a long time, worked in churches for over 10 years. But I never sought out to be a pastor I never wanted to be a pastor but God just told you Isaiah 42 9 says before they spring into being I announce them to you so I was at a I was at a church service I, I've, I've shared this story with you before August 9th 2001 how long ago is that how good your math 2001 how many years ago that's 17 years ago right So I'm sitting there. A guy's preaching a message. I'm sitting in the back of the room. And my hand just starts writing. How do I get across the Jordan? A healing sermon. Write a healing sermon named Which Way to the Jordan? It's in my notes. It's in my journal. I'm in the back of the room. I just finished writing. And the guy who was preaching stopped in the middle of his message and said, Bill Reeser, there's a healing message you'll preach one day. How do I get across the Jordan? And you know, From that day, I always believed that God was going to make me a pastor. I didn't know how. Jove caroled bats because she couldn't figure it out. But God did it. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And that's the life I live because I love people and I want to live for God. And I want to share the good news of Jesus Christ for the rest of my life to my dying breath. And that's what I'm going to do. Second story. Go to Luke chapter 5. One day while Jesus was teaching... Verse 17, one day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all of Galilee and Judea as well as from Jerusalem. Now, these people weren't real nice, okay? Now, there were large crowds coming to hear Jesus, but there were also large crowds coming that were opposed to Jesus, these were the, this was the original mob. These were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they hated Jesus, okay? They just hated Jesus. One person got that back there. That's okay. They hated Jesus with a passion. And every time Jesus did something terrible in their eyes, which was a, was, was, was a miracle, every time that Jesus did something good, like heal someone or forgive someone, they just thought it was blasphemy. They, and every time Jesus did a miracle, they wanted to kill him even that much more. But I, but I love this next verse. It says, And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Don't miss that because we're going to get to an, another story that's the complete opposite of that. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Now, here, check this out. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat, they came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. Don't say anything about this man. Don't say anything if he wanted to be there, if he asked to be made, if he asked them to bring him. They just brought him. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. Because these guys were relentless, and because these four guys had childlike faith, here's what they did. They went to the roof, took off some of the tiles, then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Don't miss this. Seeing their faith, not the guy on the mat, not the guy they brought down, seeing the four friends four friends seeing their faith jesus said to the man he didn't even respond to the four guys he just saw their faith and he tells the man young man your sins are forgiven your sins are forgiven you should have this circled in your bible this scripture is for every single person that has ever prayed or hoped for a lost spouse a lost child or someone that's not walking with jesus This scripture gives you encouragement. This scripture should give you hope. And sometimes we think it's up to that person for them to find Jesus. Sometimes Jesus responds to the faith of a friend or a family member and their faith. And because Jesus saw the faith of his four friends, he forgave the man on the mat. Well, this just took this mob the Pharisees, Pharisees, it's an Italian thing, sorry, and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Probably tearing off their, their robes and everything. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Watch this. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking those things in your hearts?" Busted. Right there, busted. You know, it's amazing how we do things. We think, okay, I'll keep this one from you, God. You know, as as if God can't see you. We'll keep this crazy thought to ourselves. As if God doesn't know our thoughts either. Busted. And here's what Jesus said. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority. Now watch this. Authority on earth, to forgive sins. He's putting these Pharisees in their place. Notice that the story before with the Roman soldier, he submitted to authority, but now he's speaking to a group of people that has no intention of submitting to authority. Matter of fact, they wanted to be the authority for God. And that's why they hated Jesus, because someone someone came to take their place, which they didn't like. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, Take up your mat, take your mat, and go home. I loved it. Notice this is the third story of a paralyzed man that we've spoken about in the last three weeks. The first one on Anchor 1, the man at the pool who didn't want to get well, Jesus healed him, even though he didn't want to get well, said, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. There was the the lame man who, who showed up at a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John prayed for him, and they said the same thing, get up and walk. Pick up your mat and walk, and here it is again. Seems to be a common theme. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. This guy was very happy. Immediately he stood up in front of him, took what he had been, immediately he stood up in front of him, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Went home praising God. Everyone, watch this, I love this. Everyone was amazed, amazed, and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen. We have seen remarkable things today. We have seen remarkable things today. Listen to me very carefully. Childlike faith will lead you to witness remarkable things that only Jesus can do. Remarkable. Remarkable. So what were some of the things that people did that limited the power of Jesus? Go to Mark chapter 6 real quick. I gotta, we're going to bring this thing to a close in just a few minutes. Mark chapter 6 says this, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, verse 1, accompanied by his disciples. So he had a following, he had his followers, he had his disciples there, and when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. So he's he's, he's doing his ministry, he's healing people, He's, he's casting out demons, miracles are happening, just like they always do. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's the wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Here's where human reasoning starts coming in. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are his sisters here with us? And watch this. And they took offense at him. You see, let me put this the right way. Unbelief will lead you to get bitter at godly people. Unbelief will lead you to get bitter to people who have an anointing. I have seen this. I know this to be true. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own home. Don't miss this. Watch. Look at the scripture. It's not that he would not, but he could not. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed, except this is a different type of an amazement. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Amazed at their lack of faith. So here's a question I want shared in group tonight. Okay, and I've got a couple questions for you. But here's the question. Here's two words. By faith, by faith, you finish. You just share. By faith, and you finish the question. By faith. Here's a couple additional questions to help you with that. By faith, what will your life legacy be? And by faith, what will people say about you at the end of your life? By faith, what will be your epitaph? In other words, what will be written on your tombstone? By faith, what will people say about you at the end of your life? By faith, what will your family and friends say about you? By faith. By faith, what will God say to you face to face when you see him in glory? By faith, what will God say about you, to you? You know, one of the things I love about children, I love this about kids, I love kids, is the simplicity in their faith. The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the the serpent's cunning, your minds may be somehow led astray from the simplicity that is in Christ. Childlike faith. Kids just have a way, have you noticed this? Kids just have a way of trusting. You know, if I I put my, if I had my four and a half year old grandson and I put him on these stairs and I got down there and I said, jump Carson, he would jump. If I, if I put Carson on the roof of the house and I said, jump, Carson, he would jump, knowing that I was there to catch him, because he has childlike faith. Kids just have a way of getting excited about things that they believe in. Have you noticed that as well, too? You know, last week, my I, little Carson, my, <laughs> my grandson, uh, s- seven days ago, six or seven days ago, my daughter and son-in-law told him, we're going to go out with some friends on Thursday night, and we're going to go to the Mexican restaurant. And he loves queso. I mean, he loves queso. This kid is addicted to queso. He's got to go to rehab for queso. He goes, queso? Thursday night's queso night. Thursday night. And so what he did all week was he told his teacher, he told all his class, Thursday night's queso night. It's queso night, Thursday night. He was so excited that he was going to get some queso. And when you should see him when he sits down at this restaurant. We get him a bowl of queso. He just gets in there and puts that queso all over him. He just loves queso. And I love the fact that he gets excited and he believed all week that, he was, that his parents were going to take him to that restaurant to get some queso. You know, kids just have a way of going all in with their beliefs as well too. Have you noticed that? They're all in. They just have a way of simplifying things as well too. So listen, this is childlike faith and this is the scripture I want to close with. Matthew 18, one through four, and this is Jesus speaking. About that time the disciples came to Jesus with another million dollar question and they said who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and i love this you know when when jesus was posed what sort of sort of odd questions funny sometimes even ridiculous questions he didn't never he never ridiculed them or got upset with them but he basically gave them a profound answer that just blew their minds and here's what jesus did who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven jesus said you really want to know he saw a little child, and he grabbed this little child and put them in front of his disciples and said, and he put the child among them. The scripture says he called a little child to him, and here's what Jesus said. I tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To believe to repent, and to just simply trust God like a child would trust his parent. Get a little kid to trust in Jesus. They don't have all the junk. They're not, they're not bound by analysis, by paralysis. They just trust, and they just believe. You know, this week, uh, I had a thought that came to me this week, and one of the, one of the heroes of heaven passed away this week. Billy Graham and I saw so many people make so many great posts and the thought that came to me was there's nothing I could say or post on social media or say to anyone that would ever give this man justice or give him the honor that he deserves that's how awesome and what a godly man this uh Billy Graham was and so I didn't post anything And and several weeks ago, I made a decision. I told my team, we're going to talk about childlike faith. We're going to talk about childlike faith. And normally, I don't have a problem of finishing out talks. And it's been a crazy week where I wasn't feeling that well. And and I really didn't have much. And I just prayed last night. I said, Lord, how do you want me to end this talk? And I felt the Holy Spirit whisper in my ear, childlike faith. And then I thought of Billy Graham. And about 10, 30, 11 o'clock last night, I just typed in two words, Billy Graham, childlike faith. And the first thing that popped up was a message that he gave in 1964 titled Childlike Faith. If you're keeping notes on your, on your fill-in-the-blanks, here's where you want to pull them out. He did a message on his of his Decision radio program recorded in 1964. It was a message called Childlike Faith. So in honor of Billy Graham and his life, he gave a message back then in 64 that's as relevant and as powerful and as true today talking about what it means to have childlike faith. I want you to listen as we close out the service to Billy Graham.
1: A French newspaper has announced that it will search all of France to find the ideal Frenchman. When this ideal Frenchman is found, he will be feted and honored with all the possibilities of becoming famous and wealthy. A society may be judged by the type of man it selects as its ideal. The Greeks honored the intellectual man and their society gave birth to great art, philosophy, and architecture. The ideal of the Romans was the military man, sturdy, disciplined, brave, and obedient. The Roman Empire was built not so much on its roads as on its concept of what a man ought to be. The ideal of pre-war Germany was the superior man. A group of men who looked upon themselves as superior beings tried in vain to foster this ideology upon the humbler people, often employing inhuman tactics. Of course, they failed. The ideal of modern America is the successful man. In our minds, the greatest miracle is for a man to start out with nothing and end up with everything. From this standpoint, President Johnson could be considered the ideal American. He started as a poor Texas lawyer, and now he's a millionaire living in the White House. We Americans live in a sort of fantasy. We invent such slogans as nothing succeeds like success. And to us, success means dollar success. A man may paint a beautiful picture, write a marvelous book, or perform some great humanitarian service. But if he doesn't make money at it, then we tend to write him off as a failure. The apostle Paul wrote to the people in Corinth and said, Brothers, just look at the way in which you've been called. You can see at once that not many wise men by human standards, not many powerful men, not many highborn men have been called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise men. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the strong things. Here, Paul glories in the fact that for the most part, the church was made up of the simplest and humblest of people. The greatness of the early Christians was simple, humble people. The intellectuals of the Roman world ridiculed Christianity because it appealed to the common people. In the first century, the writer Seleuce described the Christians as the most uneducated and vulgar persons. He said the Christians were like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest. It was precisely this which Paul said was the glory of Christianity. In the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. In the eyes of the law, a slave was a living tool, a thing, not a person. A master could fling out an old slave as he would an old hoe or a spade. He could amuse himself by torturing his slaves. He could even kill them. For slaves, there was no such thing as marriage. Even their children belonged to their masters. And it was the glory of Christianity which made people who were considered things into real men and women. Christ freed the slaves. To those who had no respect, it gave self-respect. It told men and women who did not matter to others that they did matter intensely to God. It told men who were worthless in the eyes of the world that in the eyes of God they were worth the death of his only Son on the cross. It was to these millions of the poor that Christianity made its greatest appeal in the first century. There was no middle-class Christianity, no suburban Christianity in those early days. Oh, to be sure, there were high-born persons and some rulers who followed Christ. The cousin of the emperor was martyred for her faith. We read in the scriptures that there were saints in Caesar's household. But by and large, Christianity appealed to the simple and the poor. In looking for a working model, Jesus himself had passed up the intellectual and overlooked even the powerful Roman soldiers. He passed over the self-styled religious man, of which there were so many in his day. One day, he picked up a little child, and as the Pharisees frowned their disapproval, he said, Allow the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. The child embodied none of the qualities which men held up as desirable qualities in those days. What did Jesus mean when he said that becoming like a little child was a qualification for membership in his kingdom? He said, except ye be converted and become as a little child, ye shall not see the kingdom of heaven. What did Paul mean when he said years later, God has chosen the foolish and simple things of this world to confound the intellectuals? First... He meant that we must have a child's capacity for excitement. What an exciting world a child lives in. The first day of school, Christmas, Easter, and the 4th of July. Those occasions which we adults sometimes approach with a yawn of boredom are times of high excitement for the child. Excitement is appreciation, gratitude, and awareness of things as they are. A few weeks ago, a little girl told me with excitement in her eyes, I'm going to Sunday school. How tragic it is when we lose the thrill, the curiosity, which all of us should feel when we have an appointment with God at the church. The rationalism of our times is chopped away at our capacity for excitement. I heard about a man who said during the space flight of Colonel John Glenn, I'm going to get me a six pack of beer, put on my house slippers and watch the show in comfort. While a brave man hazarded his life for the advancement of science, this spectator was less excited and less moved than he would have been watching the game of the week on television. How different it was with the disciples of Jesus Christ. They couldn't get over the excitement of the good news. They were irrepressible as they proclaimed that Jesus was God incarnate, that he died on the cross, and that he burst the seal of the tomb, that he lives forevermore, and that he can change a man's life. When that dynamic truth breaks in upon us, it shatters our apathy. It makes our hearts beat faster. It makes everything else seem dull by comparison. It demands our life, our love, and our all. Where is the excitement that we read about on the pages of the New Testament? We certainly don't have it today. Jesus said you must get back to the thrill and the excitement of a little child if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, he meant that we were to have a child's forgiving heart. Children cannot hold any grudge for very long. It is true that they have their misunderstandings, but they're brief. They never allow their prejudices to interfere with their joy of living. Their little quarrels are soon patched up for they can keep no enmity in their hearts. In that sense, we're all to be like children. When Frederick the Great was told that he should forgive his enemies before he died, he said to his wife, Dorothy, write to your brother that I will forgive him all the evil that he's ever done me, but wait until I'm dead first. Many of us nurse our ill feelings, hold on to our grudges, and feed on our dislikes. But Jesus says that we must take a leap from the book of childhood, except ye be converted and become His little forgiving children. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, he said. Christ taught that it was foolish to seek forgiveness of God while we refused to grant forgiveness to others. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us makes God's forgiving grace an impossibility to those who harbor grudges against others. Jesus said, learn to forgive your enemies as a little child soon forgives someone who has hurt him. Thirdly, Jesus meant that we were to have the believing simplicity of a little child. How natural it is for the child to believe. Except ye become as little children in believing, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. I've watched my own children say their prayers at night, and if their mother forgets to come to their rooms to listen to their prayers, they will call for her to come. In the mornings when we gather around the open fire for our family devotions, they never complain or protest. They seem almost eager for the time of devotion. My little boy often says, Daddy, when are we going to have our prayers? And yet with what drudgery we older people perform our religious duties? The average morning worship service has about as much eagerness as a funeral service. The congregation goes through pious motions, devoid of joy or any real believing. Lenin once said that religion is the opiate of the people. It is possible that Lenin might have been referring to some caricature of Christianity which was being passed off as the real thing. One thing is sure, he could not have been referring to the kind of Christianity we see in the New Testament, for it was powerful to the tearing down of strongholds. Our pseudo-intellectual culture has crippled our ability to believe. The communist ethic has splashed over into the West and made us inhospitable to childlike faith. We are drugged with materialism, numbed by secularism, so much so that we've become hardened to a simple act of faith. Some time ago I talked to a college professor about receiving Christ. He said, I would give anything in the world if I could have the simple faith you have. He said, I would like to become as a child and have the opportunity to just believe without all the intellectual problems that stand in my way. How many of us have prayed when for one fleeting moment we became aware of our spiritual poverty, backward, oh, backward, oh, time in its flight, and make me a child again just for tonight. If only we could regain those days of simple believing when life was a song, when God stirred in every blade of grass and peered from every star. What do we need? We need conversion you can become childlike with simple faith again jesus said you can be converted you can become as a little child in childlike faith you can come to the cross of christ with the knowledge that your sins are forgiven before you will be a new life but you must come as a little child would come in simple childlike faith fourthly Jesus meant that we were to come with the naturalness of children. The naturalness of children is their charm. The persons whom Jesus rebuked were the Pharisees who were pretending their religion. The ones to whom Jesus was drawn were the natural ones, the children. There are those who think that faith and prayer and worship are unnatural appendages to life. The worst thing that could happen to a man, they think, would be to become contagiously religious so that Christ in His goodness were plainly seen in their lives. Christ does not spoil your naturalness. He brings it out. He does not cramp your personality. He enhances it. He helps you to be your true self. Most of us are hypocrites and charlatans at heart. We pretend to be something we're not, sophisticated intellectual men of the world. That's why such men as Mark Twain or Clarence Darrow had such difficulty believing. They were too clever, too resourceful, too cynical, too full of pretense to be aware of their need for God. This is why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who are natural enough to believe in god and to take to their hearts all his great provisions last christ meant that we were to have a repentant heart like a child have you ever seen the tears of a broken-hearted repentance as a child poured out his sorrow for a wrong done a child has great capacity for repentance repentance is the door to the kingdom of god said jesus on the day of pentecost when the multitudes asked peter what they must do to be saved he said repent our emotions have been all but drained out before the television set or at the movie theater we go to church dry eyed and cold-hearted with no feelings of remorse for our sins and with no disposition to repent to the church at ephesus jesus said i have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love repent and do the first work or else I will come to thee quickly and will remove the candlestick out of its place, except you repent. These are all very simple things which characterize a child. But Jesus said, except ye become as a child, ye cannot enter the kingdom of God. We must come as believing, repenting, humble, natural, simple children and he has promised to restore those lost elements of childhood which give life its zest, power, meaning, and excitement. The apostle Paul said that to both the cultured Greek and the pious Jew, the story of Christ on the cross sounded like the surest folly. Paul said, the wisdom of the world has never found God, and we're still groping blindly to seek him. Paul said, the secret is found in the cross, and you must approach the cross as a child. Are you willing to humble yourself today to receive Christ as your Savior with all the simplicity of a little child? You may be a professor in a university. You may be the leading businessman in your town. You may be a scientist working on some great project. But if you are to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said you will have to come as a little child. Shall we pray? Our Father, we pray that Thou wouldst give to us today childlike faith to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, Change our lives. Give us the humility to come as a child. For we ask it in His name. Amen.